Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. This term, the Supreme Court took up two cases that could decide the fate of Roe v. Wade, the landmark abortion rights ruling. This week, our guest Joshua Prager, author of The Family Roe, talks about the 1971 abortion case, the complicated life and times of Norma McCorvey, a.k.a. Jane Roe, the activism that the court's decision engendered, and the impact that McCorvey's action had on her and her family. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. I think in as far as liberty is meaningful, that liberty to these women would mean liberty from being forced to continue the unwanted pregnancy. You're relying in this branch of your argument simply on the due process clause of the 14th Amendment? We had originally brought the suit alleging both the due process clause, the equal protection clause, the Ninth Amendment, and a variety of others. Since and anything the, else that might have been. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, since the district court found the right to reside in the Ninth Amendment, we pointed our attention in the brief to that particular aspect of the Constitution. That was an exchange between Jane Roe counsel Sarah Weddington and Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart in the December 13th, 1971 argument of Roe versus Wade. Joshua Prager, you've spent 12 years working on a book about the Roe case. Did it lead you to being able to explain or understand better why this has been, as in your words, the most enduringly divisive case ever decided by the Supreme Court? Um, Well, I think that there is something unique about America and abortion that has sort of left us vulnerable to this problem. And um, then there were also sort of uh, enormous forces at work that it that then worked hard to sort of exploit um, that vulnerability. And so it was a combination of things that were sort of uniquely American. I think our puritanical roots have something to do with it, the sort of seeming irreconcilability of sex and religion. And then again, forces on both sides of the issue that then benefited, in a sense, from having this become such an enormous problem. And they worked hard to politicize it, etc., the heart of your book, of course, is Norma McCorvey, a.k.a. Jane Rose's life story. What are the aspects of uh, Norma McCorvey's life and personality that are essential for us to know as we start this conversation? Well, I mentioned already sort of sex and religion. And when I started this project, I really had no idea kind of who she was. Norma was a compulsive liar. The stories she put out about herself were not true. And what was fascinating to me as I then began to look at her life, um, and I, was, I spent a lot of time with her, hundreds of hours with her over the last four years of her life, um, as I got to know her and also got to know her family, her mother and her grandmother, I came to see that in many ways, the very things that helped to sort of pull apart this country on this issue pulled apart her family. She was the third consecutive sort of generation in her family to have had an unwanted pregnancy. And the consequences of those pregnancies were enormous in her family. Just to give one example, um, her mother, her biological mother, Mary, was 17 years old when she was pregnant for the first time. And what happened was her family, she lived in a tiny town along the Atchafalaya River in Louisiana. Her family made her leave. They disappeared her from their town. 
She went to the big city of Baton Rouge so that they wouldn't be humiliated by the fact that their unwed daughter was pregnant. And she then was, she gave birth, and that child was then taken away from Mary and raised by her parents right across this river. And so she basically was not able to be a mother to her child. She had to pretend the child was not her child. And that had devastating consequences for Mary. And then in turn, that was the home that Norma grew up with. Jane Rowe's mother had had her life completely rerouted by an unwanted pregnancy. She became an alcoholic. Um, She had a broken marriage. She slept with many of the men she served drinks to. And this was sort of the home that Norma grew up in, a home where sex was illicit and sinful. And um, when that was sort of complicated further for Norma, when she then um, came out to her mother as a lesbian uh, in, in her early teen years, her mother told me, Mary told me that she beat Norma for that. And so sex was something very, very complicated for Norma. Her parents were Jehovah's Witnesses, um, and, and when she then um, got married at the age of 16 years old um, to a man, um, she then quickly got pregnant. That marriage fell apart, and she then had another child. Both of those children she gave birth to were surrendered to adoption. And by the time Norma was pregnant for the third time in 1969, um, uh, she had already sort of suffered enormously for the relinquishment of her children, and she did not want to go through that again. And so she said, I want to have an abortion. Abortion, of course, was illegal. And therein were the sort of seeds of her becoming Roe v. Wade. So... Uh, Jane Roe, excuse me. The uh, important meeting was with Linda Coffey. So let's bring her into the story that you tell. Who was she, and how did the two of these women get together? So... Norma, as I say, is pregnant for the third time in 1969. She does not want to have a child, and she doesn't want to um, have it to raise, and she does not want to relinquish the child. I'll just sort of add um, to what I was saying before, that um, when she gave birth to her first child, Melissa, um, she begged her mother, Mary, to take the child off of her hands. And so just as Mary had had to give up her child to her mother, Here now was Norma giving up her child to her mother, even though she begged her mother um, to take the child off her hands. There was an interesting sort of similarity there, an echo of a previous generation. Well, Norma later lied. She said that her child had been kidnapped by her mother. Um, She lied a lot. And when, in fact, she was begging her mother to sort of take that child off her hand, and the mother did adopt her. What was interesting, there was a common thread to Norma's lies, She was always reimagining herself as not a sinner, in this case, someone who didn't wish to be a mother, but as a victim, someone who had had the child taken from her. Well, when she's pregnant for the third time, she then goes to her um, adoption attorney, the same man, Henry McCluskey, who had brokered the adoptions of her previous two children. And she says, look, I don't really want to have this child, but there's nothing I can do. My doctor would not... Um, perform an abortion. He told me abortion was illegal. As an aside, another lie, Norma later told people that she had gone to an abortion clinic, but that it had just been shuttered and there was dried blood on the floor and it was very dramatic and horrible. In truth, it was much more sort of, um, much more sort of uh, less dramatic. She had found an illegal abortion clinic. It was safe, 
but she couldn't afford the $500 that it would cost to have the abortion. So she goes to this adoption attorney, Henry McCluskey, and he says, you know what? Someone I went to school with, someone I went to law school with, Linda Coffey, is looking for a plaintiff, is looking for someone to file suit against the abortion statutes in Texas. Norma asks what a plaintiff is. Henry says it's someone who brings a lawsuit. And she says, will it help me to have an abortion? He says, I don't know, but I will introduce you. So Henry, who, by the way, had filed suit against um, the sodomy statutes in um, Texas, and there was a lot of overlap back then in the fights for sort of gay rights and women's rights, he introduces Norma to Linda. And Linda then brings into the fold Sarah Weddington, another person she had gone to law school with. We just heard Sarah speaking in that, in that tape when she argued the case in front of the Supreme Court. So that is how Norma comes to be the plaintiff, Jane Roe, and her lawyers are Linda Coffey and Sarah Weddington. So I have a clip. Linda Coffey is very difficult to find anything about online, and we found one clip from the SMU archives. But uh, before we get to her, uh, when the two met, Norma and, uh, and Linda Coffey, were each very clear with the other about what their desired outcomes were? Uh, that is a very important question. So Norma did tell Linda that she wanted an abortion, and Linda did tell her, look, you are pretty far along, I can see just by looking at you in your pregnancy, and I don't know if that's going to happen. So in that sense, there was sort of transparency there. But that's where the transparency ended, because when Sarah Weddington joined uh, the team, as she then did right then in January of 1970, Sarah did not tell Norma that she worked in an abortion referral network. She didn't tell her that they were flying women and girls who wanted to have abortions out to California every single Friday on a plane on American Airlines. In California, abortion was legal through the 20th week of pregnancy. Governor Reagan had, had signed into law the Abortion the Therapeutic Act, which was the most sort of liberal abortion law in the country in 1967. So not only did Sarah not tell her that she might have been able to help her, um, another woman I spoke to in that abortion referral network, Victoria Foe, told me that in desperate situations they were able to help women up to the 20th week, and that's right about where Norma was, 19th, 20th weeks. Not only that, Sarah did not tell Norma that she herself had had an abortion at a clinic in Mexico, just south of the border. Had the lawyers really wanted to help Norma to have an abortion, they could have at least tried. But of course, Norma was more valuable to them pregnant than not pregnant. They desperately needed a plaintiff, and it had been very hard to find one. They needed to find someone who was unhappily pregnant and who could not afford to go to where abortion was legal, and Norma fit the bill. So first time that Norma in her story was used in the abortion story as it unfolds in the United States. I want to go back to this very brief clip of Linda Coffey uh, just to talk about the two lawyers. Uh, let's watch, and again, this is one of the very few uh, times that she's actually available to the press. This was in June of 1970 uh, after the first case was heard. She can have an abortion, and assuming that she has it in Texas, uh, she need no longer suffer any kind of uh, guilt feelings because of engendered by the fact, uh, the supposed fact that, the, that she is committing an illegal act. Of course, she may still encounter some difficulty in finding a physician who will 
uh, perform an abortion since the, the physicians would still face the, the threat of prosecution. That was after the first appeal at the federal level. It's a really interesting dynamic between Sarah Weddington and, and Linda Coffey. Why is it that we know so little of her? And Sarah Weddington is, uh, is very available in, in most newspaper archives and archives like ours and stayed associated with the case for the next decades. Yeah, so Sarah is very famous. Um, her life changed forever when she argued the case in front of the Supreme Court. She was just 26 years old. And the reason that we all know Sarah and no one knows Linda, and I tried very hard in my book to sort of restore Linda to her proper place in history, is because as much as Sarah loved the spotlight, and she did and still does, Linda ran from it. Um, she was reclusive. And it is... Um, a real tragedy to say that today the woman who really more than anyone, as I can um, argue, I think persuasively, is the real sort of matriarch of Roe, um, is living today in real poverty. Uh, she's living um, on food stamps uh, with her partner. Um, she um, was bankrupt and she has lives in a house with no heat. Um, so it was Linda Coffey who, as we mentioned, through Henry McCluskey, finds the plaintiff, Jane Roe. Um, it is she who wishes to, she, she comes up with its initial sort of um, legal reasoning to, um, to ground the right to abortion in privacy, um, building on a case, a 1965 case of Griswold, um, which gave married couples the right to purchase contraception. Um, she argues half of the case at the lower courts, and I think just as importantly as just as important as anything else, she has the sort of guts to attach her name to the case and file it, which Sarah did not wish to do initially in 1970, um, in March 1970. Then, as the case sort of gains steam and it rises up the judicial ladder and it goes to the Supreme Court, they both decide, Linda and Sarah both, that it would be great if Sarah was the one who argued the case in the Supreme Court. Sarah does, you know, she works very hard preparing for that. But a lot of that was optics. Um, she looked a certain way. She was very feminine. Um, and Linda um, always had sort of must hair and um, was very uncomfortable in front of the cameras. And almost immediately when Rose decided in January of 1973, Sarah really cuts Linda from the story. She starts saying I instead of we and Linda does nothing to correct the record. What's sort of fascinating is this infuriates not Linda, but Linda's mother. And Linda's mother worked um, for the Southern Baptist Convention. And what's fascinating to me, I didn't know this when I started doing this work, was that the SBC, this enormous evangelical body, was pro-choice until 1980. And so there was room for Linda in, in her church. She was a religious Baptist herself. And she was able to sort of have the comfort of her church and of her conviction. Later on, the church switches about faces not only on abortion, but also on homosexuality, which was very difficult for Linda because she is gay, and also sort of on just the place of a woman in the home. They speak of the need for a woman to be sort of subservient to the man. And Linda, of course, was a, a real feminist. So for all of these reasons, she sort of feels alienated from her church and this also contributes, unfortunately, to her sort of um, unraveling. And so hers is a very sad story. But she remains proud of Roe to this day. And it was exciting for me to um, 
to interview her and to um, tell her story, really, for the first time. So let's move to the Supreme Court in 1971, hearing the case. Unusually, they heard the case twice. Why is that? That was because two of the justices um, were ill, and so there were only seven justices the first time it was heard, and they felt um, for a case with this sort of importance, um, it really ought to be re-argued in front of... um, the full uh, nine justices. The opinion was assigned by the Chief Justice to Harry Blackman, and just as with Sarah Weddington and Jane Roe, this case came to define his life and his career. Let's uh, listen to him in 1995 talking about uh, what his mailbox was like after the case. And there were the expected comments to the effect that uh, your mother should have aborted you or I have been praying for your immediate death, and much of the correspondence is abusive. I suspect I've been called every possible epithetical name, author of a new Dred Scott opinion, Hitler, butcher of Dachau, Pontius Pilate, Herod, murderer, madman, and the like. I can outrun Joseph Swan, the abolitionist judge, and I suspect I can outrun... Chief Justice Roger Tony. Joshua Prager, in your book, you describe uh, the court's uh, mechanisms, particularly Justice Blackman, laboring over the decision. You know, and w- in that clip we played, we heard Sarah Weddington talk about which constitutional amendment they were really focusing on. How did Har- Harry Blackman end up deciding the, the core of the argument that others would sign on to? So... You see, when you look at his papers, the sort of evolution of the opinion. And initially, he sends out um, a draft of a memo to his um, fellow justices, and they're not impressed. But he has extra time. Um, And it is a clerk of his, George Frampton, who really ends up writing the majority of the sort of constitutional analysis. It's only a few paragraphs in the opinion while Justice Blackmun goes to the Mayo Clinic, where he had served as the lawyer there for years, um, and which, by the way, had also sort of attuned him to the plight of women who um, had died um, because abortion was not legal yet. Um, And he writes the kind of history of abortion in religion, in the law, um, in America, etc. Well, there are two questions that Justice Blackmun has to grapple with, that the court has to grapple with. It's not only where in the Constitution to ground the right to abortion. It's also um, until when in a pregnancy can that right be extended and granted. And these are the sort of two big questions that they're working on. Well, later on, there were a lot of people, including um, on the pro-choice side, who felt that abortion should never have, the right to abortion should never have been grounded in privacy. But rather, as Justice Ginsburg said, and she said it before she was on the court, it ought to have been grounded in equality. And when a case in 1992 is decided, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that really is where it then takes its grounding in the right to equality. Um, but at the time, it was privacy. In that same interview, 1995, that you just that we were listening to, Justice Blackmun says that he wouldn't have had the votes to ground it in equality as opposed to privacy at that time because of the um, precedent that I mentioned earlier in the case of Griswold. There's debate over whether or not that's true. Um, But as for when in the course of the pregnancy to grant the right, it's really interesting 
just by complete chance, um, a few months before Roe was decided, in September 1972, there's a district judge who is still living, John Newman, in Connecticut, who rules on a case, um, Abley v. Markle, where he says that abortion needs to be legal through viability until the point in the pregnancy at roughly the end of the second trimester, 24 weeks or so, when the fetus can survive outside of the womb. Until that point, and it's Justice um, uh, Stewart and another justice who really calls Justice Blackmun's attention to that ruling, until that point, Justice Blackmun was actually um, leaning towards um, just legalizing abortion through the end of the first trimester. Um, But at the very end, he sort of um, switches and pushes that right forward by a trimester. And the justices are happy. They are impressed with the opinion. And even those who dissent, um, there's Rehnquist and White. Justice Rehnquist writes a note to Justice Blackmun complimenting him on his uh, opinion. The court ruled on January 22nd, 1973, a date which is memorialized each year by a major march here in Washington, D.C. What was the immediate impact? You know, it's interesting. Um, The country acclimated. Of course, there were those right away, um, chief among them Catholics, who said that this is horrible and they likened it, as we said, to Dred Scott and and um, and, you know, vowed that this was that they would never stop fighting. But initially, most of the country says, OK, we'll move along. Um, insurance companies um, will cover the procedure. Um, it's it's available now in in, in hospitals all over the country. Uh, there a remarkably telling um, episode is that the first time there is a potential justice who uh, to the court, uh, Justice Stevens, at his Senate confirmation hearing, he's not even asked of Roe v. Wade. So the country is moving forward. But there was a small a small minority that said, no, um, we are going to do all we can to overturn this decision. And that small minority begins to grow and grow and grow. And initially, um, there was a desire on the part of the pro-life community to try to overturn this in one fell swoop by having a, a personhood amendment introduced to the Constitution. If you say that a fetus is a person, then, of course, they can't be aborted. Um, but that there's no real appetite, political appetite, even among um, those who oppose abortion um, uh, for the personhood amendments. And so the movement begins to sort of say, OK, we can't go one fell swoop. We're going to take an incremental approach. And it's in 1976 when the National Right to Life Committee, led by a woman I write a lot about in my book, Dr. Mildred Jefferson, where they really begin to politicize abortion in earnest. Now, we can discuss there was some politicizing of abortion before um, Roe. But in 1976, they make it an issue during the uh, presidential election. They make presidential um, candidates sort of comment on issue, you know, opinions on the matter of abortion. And they introduce into the Republican platform opposition to Roe. And that really presses fast forward on this politicizing. And then the Democrats follow suit. And, and, and here we are um, almost 50 years later. Um, what's really interesting to me, I mentioned before how until 1980, the Southern Baptist Convention was pro-choice. 
What was really fascinating was this was not a partisan issue. That also really shocked me. You had plenty of Republicans who were pro-choice. Um, we mentioned uh, Governor Reagan, um, uh, uh, George Bush, the senior George Bush. On the other side, you had plenty of Democrats who were pro-life. Um, Senator Kennedy, of course, was um, Catholic, so it was easy for him. But others, Jesse Jackson, Dick Gephardt, Al Gore. But little by little by little, as the issue becomes more and more politicized, all the politicians get in line. And now, of course, there is no greater indicator of political affiliation than one's stance on an abortion. We found one clip in our video library of uh, Mildred Jefferson uh, back from 1989 when she was president of the Right to Life crusade. And uh, you describe her as a star, the first black woman to graduate from Harvard Medical School and someone who became the lifeblood of the pro-life movement in its early days. Let's watch and listen to Mildred Jefferson. The people of the United States should be alarmed that there are those among us who would actually march in the streets to demand the right to choose to kill the unwanted, the unloved, the burdensome, the inconvenient, and the incapacitated. The demonstration of our adversary, human beings, suggests a lack of heart, soul, and common sense. It underscores that we are resolved as never before that every woman's organization in this country has got to deal with these issues a little more forthrightly than has been possible in the past. Joshua Prigger, in a scene in your book, you describe her as possibly convincing Ronald Reagan to change his position on abortion. Tell me the story. Yeah, not even possibly. It's sort of remarkable. We have a letter from him. Uh, he writes to her and says, you did convince me. She appeared, I mean, you could hear just from that clip, I mean, she was a mesmerizingly good speaker. Um, she was also beautiful, which did not hurt when she was on TV over and over again. And, and before I get to Reagan, I'll just say what I think was really important about her sort of biography was the pro-life community was desperate to be seen as more than just sort of white Catholic men. And here you had a black Methodist woman, also a doctor. Um, and so she basically checked every single box and she was being put on television over and over and over again by that movement because she was so effective. And um, she was on a television show called The Advocates, where she was arguing against abortion. And she was looking at slides um, of abortion, sort of medical slides, and sort of using her medical language to sort of say what is happening to the fetus here, what is happening to the fetus there. And off in California, uh, Governor Reagan watched that. And he wrote her a letter saying, you have convinced me that the taking of the of unborn life is is murder. And um, I don't remember if murder is the word he uses, but something to that effect um, or that abortion is the taking of, of human life. I think that's what he wrote. And um, they have a few more letters back and forth. And when he then becomes president, um, one of the first people he invites to his side in the first days of his presidency is is Dr. Jefferson. Um, he's signaling to her that you're going to remain an important person um, in this issue as long as I occupy this office, and she does. I argue, I think, um, I, I argue in the book, excuse me, that she really is the architect of the pro-life movement, um, politicizing Roe um, and republicanizing um, opposition to Roe. Um, she foresaw the great value of, of politics as a way to sort of bring over um, to the Republican Party uh, Catholic 
Democrats, and she's very effective in doing this. Now, again, some of this started pre-Roe. We have um, a letter that um, Pat Buchanan wrote a memo to President Nixon saying that there was value in opposing Roe, but it really uh, begins in earnest um, after uh, she takes over the National Right to Life Committee in 1976. And uh, I don't want to spend too much time because we'll run out of time, but you uh, say she was ultimately forced out of her position leading it. Does she get enough credit in the history books for the role she played? Not at all. What was fascinating to me about Dr. Jefferson and also we mentioned Linda Coffey and I argue a third person as well in the book, Dr. Curtis Boyd. These people are incredibly important and yet all but unknown. Um, And she needs to be known. She's a very important person and we see sort of the, the, the results of her work uh, all these years later um, with the upcoming sort of overturning, I think we would all agree, of Roe. Um, and she really laid the, laid the foundation for that. I'll just add, the pro-life committee, uh, community, they look at her as sort of this saint of their movement because she left um, the heights of her medical profession. We mentioned she was the first black woman to graduate from Harvard Medical School to tend to sort of the unborn, as they say. Well... It's much more complicated than that. I found an FBI file all about her because um, she was, uh, President Nixon wanted to appoint her to a medical board and they looked into her life. And the reason she left the medical profession for a life of advocacy was not because of sort of conviction as opposed to um, uh, desperation. Misogyny and racism had really torpedoed her career as a surgeon. And she was then unsure what she would do. And then pre-Roe, when the American Medical Association comes out and says, if a doctor is in a state where abortion is legal, they now need to defer to those state laws, she's very angry about that. And then she gets introduced to the movement, and sort of it goes on from there. Yeah, Curtis Boyd uh, gets a a great deal of coverage in your book, as does Dr. Jefferson. And uh, again, just a minute or two on him, an ordained minister at the age of 16, another one of your very complex characters in this story, became the head of abortion clinics in Texas and New Mexico, estimating that he's performed 250,000 abortions over his career. As you tell the story, Dr. Boyd kept pushing the outer edge of the viability question. At the same time, the medical profession is pushing the other direction and increasing the viability of the fetus uh, successfully. It was on a collision course, obviously. Why did Dr. Boyd continue to push the viability to the outer edges? Well, today he's the largest provider of third trimester abortion in this country, and he does that because his friend, Dr. Tiller, uh, is murdered. And what was so fascinating to me about Dr. Boyd, just very quickly, is that you know, you watch him grapple with this. He initially doesn't want to provide any abortions. Then pre-row, a poor woman comes to him in Texas. She can't afford to have another child, basically. And he, he aborts the pregnancy. It's just 10 weeks along. And then he stops at 16 weeks. And then finally, a few more years go by and he stops at viability. But then a woman comes to him. Um, and it turns out that she's carrying a fetus that has Tay-Sachs disease, a miserable disease that will cause the a baby to die, basically, you know, in infancy or as a toddler, suffer along the way. And then he feels very bad. Why did I not abort that pregnancy? Why did I say no? And after Dr. Tiller is murdered, he feels that it is something that he must do. And the single most important thing about him, and he's a very important person, is that he prefigures the attitudinal shift in the pro-choice movement 
from being something that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare, as President um, Clinton famously put it, to, to not saying it should be rare. Why should it be rare? It's something he believes is a social and moral good, something that empowers women. And so um, that movement has sort of adopted his view of abortion. So let's bring the story, or about the 30-minute mark, uh, let's bring the story back to Norma McCorvey. Uh, so the abortion uh, decision is made by the Supreme Court in 1973. She was pregnant in 1969. So many people believed, as you did, uh, that she'd had her abortion. What actually happened? Yeah, I was, I mean, just to step back, you say, as I did, it's true. The way, the way I got into this whole crazy decade of work was I was reading an article in 2010 about gay marriage, um, which mentioned that sometimes a plaintiff is wonderful for the cause she represents and sometimes she isn't. And in the latter category, they mentioned Norma because, as we'll discuss, she switches over to the pro-life side. And then they mentioned parenthetically that she'd not had the abortion she sought. And I said, oh, my God, that of course not, because a law case takes longer than the gestation of a baby. And so I then dove into this um, world. And yes, I found out that she is pregnant in 1969. She gives birth in June of 1970, and she relinquishes that child to adoption. Now, as the years go by, the pro-life world looks at that unknown child, no one knew who that person was, as the sort of incarnation of their argument against abortion. Because they will say, instead of just arguing in the abstract against abortion, they say, well, this human being would have been murdered had um, Roe been in effect. And they referred to this unknown person as the Roe baby. Well, I wanted to find that person because I had a feeling that he or she knew who she had been born to, and I had a feeling that it would be a very difficult thing to carry, uh, knowing that you are seen as this enormous symbol. And I reached out to Norma. This is how my whole sort of process began. She did not wish to speak to me because she said I had to pay her. I explained I couldn't do that. And I instead reached out to a woman named Connie Gonzalez, Norma's partner of many years. She is really the only person in Norma's life who cared more about Norma than about Jane Roe. On the pro-choice side, Norma was really marginalized. Um, On the pro-life side, she was really exploited. And here was a woman who just loved Norma and wanted to be with her. Well, Norma, unfortunately, did not treat Connie particularly well. And she had just left Connie after Connie had had a stroke when I reached out to Connie and I visited her in Texas and it was during my second visit to her when she says to me, "Um, by the way, my home is being foreclosed on and Norma's private papers in the garage are about to be thrown out. And I say, please don't throw them out. Those are important papers. Can I have them? And she says, yes. I later purchased those papers from Norma and they're now um, at a research library at Harvard Well, it was in those papers on one sheet that the date of birth of Norma's third child was mentioned in an interview Norma gave to a Catholic newsletter, June 2nd, 1970. And that ended up enabling me to find that third child. I reached out not to her, but to her mother, just in case she didn't know who she'd been born to. But the mother said, yes, we do know about Norma, and um, I will let my daughter know that you got in touch. Shelly is her name, Shelly Thornton. She did not wish to speak yet at that moment um, to me. But when I then got back in touch a year later and told her that I had found her two half-siblings, 
the other children Norma had given birth to and relinquished to adoption, and that they wished to work with me on a book. Then Shelley said that she did too. And two years later, in 2013, it was sort of beautiful. The three daughters had all looked for each other, and I was able to bring them together. Um, and, and that was really um, a very moving moment for the three of them and for me too. Why did Norma agree to start talking to you? So when Norma's mother, Mary, died, and I think that might have been just the next year in 2014, I went to the wake. Norma's eldest child, Melissa, who was the only of the three daughters to sort of have Norma in her life, um, even though she'd been raised by her grandmother, Norma was in her life, Melissa invited me to the wake. And I was at the wake when Norma showed up. And um, I kept my distance. And then after the wake, Melissa invited Norma and me to her home. And she turned to her mother, her biological mother, and said, Mom, um, I want you to be good to this person, meaning me. He is helping us sort of figure out what happened when. He's helping us find, he's he's helped us find um, each other, meaning the three daughters. And Norma, it was an interesting thing that sort of clicked. Norma had lied, as I mentioned, many times during her life. And after a while, she actually forgot what had happened in her life. The lies sort of overtook her narrative. And there were so many of them. The first lie she ever told was that, about Roe, I should say, was that she'd gotten pregnant via rape. Um, that one she famously recanted, but all the others she just sort of let, let, made them public and never corrected them. And she was dying. Um, she had done an enormous amount of drugs. She had struggled with alcohol abuse. She smoked a lot. She suffered with a lot of lung issues. And she saw in me, I think, an opportunity to help figure out exactly what happened when and also connect with her children. She had never met her second or third children. And so she started to work with me. And just to give one example um, of how helpful she was to me, when I said to her, um, you know what, Norma, you've told so many different stories about your schooling. It would be helpful for me if we could figure it out. She signed a letter notarizing the sort of local board of education to give me her file. And when she did that, I found in her file the name of the person who was really her first girlfriend. And when I interviewed that woman, she was the person who helped me tell me the, exactly what happened about Norma not having her child kidnapped, but, having, but begging her mother to sort of take that child off her hands. She was also the only one who knew the name of the biological father of Norma's second child. And so little by little over the course of these years, I was able to put Norma's life together. So the great conundrum of Norma McCorvey's life is her activism on both sides of the abortion movement. We have two pieces of videotape back-to-back, one from 1990 and one from 2005, showing her making both arguments. This is the first case before the United States Supreme Court this year in which Judge Souter will deal with an individual's right to choose. He has implied that he will use the constitutional framework, not his personal beliefs, to influence his decisions while on the court. Now we will see if this is applied to the reproductive rights issue. We asked him not to overturn Roe versus Wade. We're looking forward to uh, having abortion, the covenant of death, to be overturned like our great president, George W., just said... 
and God is good and Jesus is. Joshua Prager, were you able to understand her turnaround? Yeah, I'm smiling only also because what's so fascinating is little by little, she's learning, she learns the language of both sides. So at one point she said abortion is a covenant of death. And she did the exact same thing on the pro-choice side. Well, what was really fascinating about Norma, look, she was very much comfortable pledging herself to ideologies that were not her own. Um, and there was an enormous cost to her becoming pro-life, which was that she was also made to renounce her homosexuality. But she did have an opinion that was genuine and that was her own, even though she didn't make it public. Days after Roe v. Wade in 1973, she was interviewed by a tiny Baptist newsletter. And in that newsletter, she says, you know what? It's her first ever interview. I believe, I'm thankful that my case has helped to legalize abortion, but I don't know if a person should ever have an abortion after the first trimester. After that point, she says to this reporter, it strikes me that it is the taking of a human life. And at the very end of her life, well, before I get to that, she then says that exact same thing on air to Ted Koppel right after her conversion, which infuriates her new friends in Operation Rescue in the pro-life movement. They say, no, 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 you can't say that. Eventually, she gets in line publicly. Well, at the very end of her life, she says it again to me over and again, literally from her deathbed. Um, She's hospitalized over the last weeks of her life. I was with her, in fact, when she passed away. So from the beginning to the middle to the end, this is what she believed. And what's so fascinating is that in that way, she really was the perfect plaintiff for abortion um, because for Roe, because for she represents the majoritarian middle ground here in America. That is exactly what the great majority of Americans feel. Now, there's also a real sort of American angle to this. She monetizes her plaintiffship. She wrings from it a living. And so she's being paid to give speeches on the pro-choice side. She's being paid to give speeches on the pro-life side. Um, And, you know, she'll say what she's paid to say. But she does have an opinion. And she wanted that known. She never had an abortion. And she also really wanted it known that she had given birth to three children. Now, just to sort of say one more thing, what's so interesting is her, her life is such a mirror and a window into this whole big thing of abortion in America. And the pro-life wish to say, aha, look at her, look at the cost of abortion. Well, she never had an abortion. And what she actually is a fascinating sort of testimony to is the cost of adoption. She struggled enormously um, emotionally with what it meant to have relinquished her three children to adoption. And the pro-life say the exact opposite. They say that a woman who is pregnant with a child she doesn't want needs to relinquish that child and that um, abortion causes women psychological harm. Well, it's the exact opposite that is true. There are individuals, of course, who have abortions who struggle. Um, But even as C. Everett Koop said, the pro-life Surgeon General under Ronald Reagan, from a public health standpoint, that psychological toll is minuscule. There was reported speculation that Norma McCorvey was paid to convert to the pro-life point of view. Were you able to discern whether or not that was true or false? Yeah, that was nonsense. That was in an FX documentary last year. I had her taxes. I knew all about her finances. 
Norma was a compulsive liar, and the filmmaker there says, were you paid to switch sides? You can't ask a question like that to Norma. She'll say, of course. Um, but no, it is true that she knew that there was financial incentive to switch. She knew that she'd be paid um, to give speeches on the other side, but she was not paid to actually do it. You know, if there's one thing above all that led Norma to switch sides, it was, as I say, her marginalization by the pro-choice movement. And when she finds out in 1992, when Sarah Weddington writes this in a book, that not only had she been working in an abortion referral network and didn't tell Norma, but that she herself had had an abortion, Norma is furious. And that really, she, she, she writes with very, I, I write quoting her in very colorful language what she said about how she was going to show them, um, you know, that they needed to sort of take her seriously. And they did have to take her seriously after she switched sides. And becoming pro-life was not a little thing. It actually um, had huge ramifications. A lawyer named Alan Parker files suit on her behalf, a case called McCorvey v. Hill, in which he says that Roe needs to be overturned because of all sorts of problems um, um, that he then goes into. And it's those exact arguments that Parker makes in that case that we just heard the lawyers in Dobbs make, um, that, that abortion causes women's psycholo- psychological harm, that science has shown us that the fetus is causing pain, um, that, that a woman can um, relinquish her child to adoption. All of these arguments Alan Parker was making, and it was, and it was Norma McCorvey who enabled him to do so. Of course, there are many millions of true believers on both sides of this issue, but one of the other things your book illustrates is the industries that grew up around both sides of this, the millions of dollars raised for causes. Uh, did Norma benefit from any of that? She did. I mean, she she did. She was she didn't make a lot of money, but um, she 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 got by. Some years she was only making thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars. Some year a little more. Some years a little less. In the teens or in the twenties. But yes, there was always another podium where she was invited to speak. Um, there are the sort of crisis pregnancy centers on the pro-life side that that always go right next to um, um, an, an abortion. Um, uh, excuse me, a place where an abortion clinic and they sort of make it unclear which side they stand on and they would also pay Norma to come and speak at these places. Um, yeah, so she did. She was able to sort of make a living. And what's really amazing is this uneducated woman, she drops out of school in 10th grade. She's dealing with enormous personalities on both sides, powerful people. And she sort of migrates from the pro-choice side to the pro-life side, from the evangelicals to the Catholics, always finding another community that will pay her um, to tell her story and to tell, to sort of say publicly what she wants them to. Um, she was very canny in that way. And yet what's so tragic is that they didn't treat her well. And at the very end of her life, you know, you have these two movements. She gave her body to one side. She gave her soul to the other, in a sense. And they weren't there for her in any way. Um, and it was sort of very sad to see. Less than 15 minutes left. Let's turn to uh, the daughters. We have a clip of uh, Melissa Mills, Norma McCarvey's oldest daughter, the one you said that was closest to her. This is from September of this year, 2021. Uh, Let's watch. Yeah, she felt guilty, and people made her feel bad for the part and the role that she played with the Roe versus Wade case uh, and all the babies that were aborted through the years, and people would call her a killer. They called her Satan. They called her all kinds of terrible things. It, it was it was cruel. 
she, uh, Melissa, invited you to be at Norma's bedside when Norma passed. You, you accepted that invitation and literally called Melissa to tell her when her mother was near death. Um, I'm wondering about how you, as a journalist, were able to remain dispassionate when you were so closely involved with the family. It was very complicated. Um, I am a person who prides myself on sort of being an ethical journalist. I um, am very careful when I'm talking to people who are not used to being interviewed, for example, to um, always make sure that they're comfortable with, the, with what they're saying, that it goes in the book. I went over the passages in the book with them to make sure they were comfortable. Um, um, and yet, you know, you also, just journalism aside, want to be a good person and, and do what's right. It's a complicated thing. Um, at, at the very end of, of Norma's life, you're right, Melissa um, had asked me, she wanted to run home for a shower, she asked me to go to Norma's bedside, and there you are, and you're not thinking as a journalist there. You're saying, oh my goodness, you know, this is, this is sad. There's a human being who's dying here, and her daughter needs to be there. So I quickly called Melissa and asked her to come back. You know, I have my mentors, um, uh, Paul Steiger, who was my boss when he was everybody's boss at the Wall Street Journal, um, um, Cullen Murphy, who was an editor at The Atlantic, people who really know what a journalist should do, and I would check in with them and talk to them and talk these things through. It was complicated. But, you know, always I tried to sort of be transparent um, and honest and with, with the people I was writing about. And there were times that I think, you know, I, I probably did what isn't perfect from a journalism point of view because it struck me as the right thing to do. For example, at one point, just to say, I haven't said this before, one of the daughters was really struggling financially and I tried to help her find a job. Um, and, you know, you do, you do what you do. Um, so, and those are choices you sort of make as you go along. Um, but overall, I was very lucky in that the daughters wanted this story told um, and, and, and they felt comfortable with me telling it. The fact that I worked with them over the course of a decade, um, I think really helped make that possible. I want to get Shelley Thornton on camera before we close here, about eight minutes left, um, because it was your reporting that encouraged her to become public. This is an interview with ABC in the early October of this year. Do you have an opinion about whether women should be allowed to have abortions? I do. It's an opinion that I keep pretty close to my chest, just because I don't want either side or both sides coming at me. I'm not going to let either side use me. She saw what happened to her mother um, and didn't want to become part of that. But why did, do you think she's agreed to give interviews at this point? You know, I'm so glad she did because ultimately I'm the person writing her story. If she wishes to sort of speak for herself, I think that's wonderful. You know, I've written a lot about people who carry secrets over the years. Um, I wrote, for example, about the only anonymous winner of a Pulitzer Prize, a photographer I found in Iran, and um, who had taken a photograph of an execution during the Islamic Revolution. It's a very difficult thing to carry a secret. And when I approached Shelley, I saw that she was, you know, suffering for that, under that very same burden. And on the one hand, you're worried about people sort of coming at you. On the other hand, you want to sort of get out from under this and not feel that you always have to be mindful not to say something. And I think that's why they all agreed to speak with me. And, you know, their, their lives are complicated. They all, just to sort of mention, all three of the daughters, in a sense, echoed 
enormous feelings about abortion. They all believe that abortion ought to be legal, and yet they don't speak about it in the way that, you know, the leaders at NARAL might want you to, and they certainly don't feel it is a social and moral good, as Dr. Boyd would say, but they don't think that it ought to be a form of birth control, to use their language again. Um, But I didn't focus at all on Roe with them. We talked about their lives, and in a sense, their children, them, Norma, Norma's mother, Norma's grandmother. You have five generations here of a family. And overall, when you, when you look at their family, you see how complicated it is on a very human level when abortion is not legal. Um, and I don't, you know, I mentioned in the author's note that I'm pro-choice, but I was very fair to both sides. I did my very best to write about both sides with, with fairness and understanding. And I just wanted to sort of humanize these issues. And in writing about the family, I was able to do so. Did Norma and Shelley ever meet? They did not. Um, they did not. It was devastating to Shelley for very good reason. When she finds out, on the, first she's sort of thrilled to find out that her biological mother is looking for her. Many children who have been given up for adoption feel that. But then she finds out that really Norma is not looking for the middle child, Jennifer. She's only looking for her. Norma is hoping that they can sort of go on the road together and be paid to give speeches. And, and Shelley doesn't want any part of that, understandably. She just wants to find out who her biological mother is. So they have an, a, an initial sort of difficult um, um, conversation in 1989. Shelley finds out who she was. Um, we didn't mention this. When the National Enquirer, a tabloid, sort of comes upon her in a parking lot days before her 19th birthday and says, we're going to basically write about you whether you like it or not, she prevails upon them with the help of a lawyer not to have her name mentioned. But that's when she's sort of carrying this burden evermore. Um, and, um, and um, sorry, I forgot what I was just going to say. About the two of them meeting. You, what was, was the question? question? It was about the two oh, of yeah, them Oh, yeah, that's meeting. right. That's right. And so right then, in 1989, is when they sort of have a difficult first conversation. That's when Shelley finds out that Norma really just wants to take their show on the road. A few years later, they have their final conversation. Um, Norma wants to come visit her um, with her partner, Connie. Shelley feels uncomfortable. She says, well, what am I going to tell my children that their, their grandmother has a girlfriend? Um, Shelley, uh, excuse me, Norma is furious. She tells her that Shelley needs to thank her. Shelley says, why? And, and Norma says, for not aborting you. A horrible thing to say, setting aside that she actually had wanted to have the abortion. What's so fascinating to me and admirable is that Shelley nonetheless finds it within herself at the end of Norma's life to feel for Norma, to feel for what she had to carry all those years um, as the plaintiff um, in Roe. And she says, you know, this woman's life was defined by abortion and Roe, and my, will, my life will be the opposite. I will want to have nothing to do with this. And she is being true to that. Not much time left, but many of the characters in this in this book that you've written are, have their life defined by the abortion issue. You yourself, 12 years now you've been working on this. Did you feel consumed by this issue as well? Yeah, you know, you see that people on both sides of the issue, when they devote themselves to Roe, their lives are often very complicated. They become overwhelmed by it. It happened to Curtis Boyd. It happened to Mildred Jefferson. Mildred Jefferson literally dies in a pile of her papers that documented her 40-year fight for abortion. Um, Norma, it certainly happened to. It was an overwhelming thing for me. Um, And I am proud to have finished this book. I think there is um, a need for it. 
to look at abortion not through politics but through people. And yet I'm also really glad to be finished and turning the page and, and writing about other things. Ultimately, what should Norma be considered a symbol of? I would say really how, how complicated abortion is. I do think that abortion is fraught for good reason. On the one hand, you have the humanity of the fetus. On the, the other hand, you have the very real and overwhelming reasons a woman might wish to have an abortion. Norma was incredibly um, um, pulled apart by this issue, and she reflected, uh, she was ambivalent about it. And people on both sides of the issue, she confided in when the cameras were not there. She told them how complicated she thought this was. And, and in that sense, as I sort of mentioned earlier, I think that she was the right plaintiff for Roe, a better sort of symbol than a Gloria Steinem would have been because Norma was, um, Norma was conflicted about it and so are the great majority of Americans. Last question, we have one minute. Would you comment on the subtitle and also the cover of your book, the decisions you made about both? Sure. So the subtitle, An American Story, was put forward by um, my editor and I liked it immediately because... On the one hand, I'm writing about how this is an American story on a macro level, the sort of reasons that the American traditions that um, made America, again, sort of fertile ground for abortion to become so, um, to take root in such a complicated way, such a divisive way. Um, And I'm also writing an American story as it relates to Norma. Again, she... She, she's being paid. She's getting baptized in a swimming pool in Texas while the cameras are rolling. Gloria Allred is whistling her off to Hollywood. So it's a very American story. In terms of the cover, it was my suggestion to the art director that she somehow sort of communicate a notion of divide and rupture. And I thought that she did so beautifully um, with the American flag sort of peeking up almost like a palimpsest from beneath this rip. Um, I thought it was it, it was beautifully rendered. The new book is The Family Row, an American Story. Joshua Prager, longtime reporter who spent a dozen years of his life telling the story, uh, story of Norma McCorvey, a.k.a. Jane Roe. Thank you for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 